Welcome to the DTP podcast for January 2022, volume 60, number one. My name is David Fazakli and I'm DTP's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Uh, thank you for joining us for this podcast in which we talk about some of the content in the January issue of DTP. Uh, we're recording this on the 14th of December and the breaking news is that I've just been pinged by NHS Test and Trace because I spent Sunday afternoon with a friend who's just had a positive PCR test. Uh, luckily, I don't have to isolate at the moment because I've had two COVID vaccines uh, and my first lateral flow is negative. But along with 24 million other people, I've also had my third dose, so hopefully I'm as protected as can be. Um, so let's start with a quick chat about the boosters, James. I know this is something you wanted to talk about. Uh, yes, um, it's fast moving at the moment, I think. Uh, we obviously had some notification last week that the government was going to uh, stop some of the elements of our contract as GPs so that we could get on with uh, the programme. And then, of course, Sunday night, we were told that basically everyone's going to have their boosters by the end of the year. So that, so that, so that just to be clear, what they, what they seem to be suggesting was that's 18 million vaccinations to be delivered in 18 days? Yes, that's right. And, and and for us personally in West Berkshire, it's 176,000 boosters. Um, exactly. So this is a big, tall order. Uh, and um, we are about a fifth of the practices locally actually adopted out of doing uh, the COVID boosters when all our other contractual requirements came back into play in April. Uh, so we finished doing the boosters, the first lot of boosters, you know, the second jab. Uh, in June and that was it. So we were back to the day job and now we're quietly contemplating cancelling appointments for our patients and setting up big new clinics. So busy, busy times and literally hot off the press just before we went live, we heard that the chief medical officers have suspended the 15 minute rule for the RNA vaccines. So that's Moderna and Pfizer. We've just heard we don't need to ask people to sit down for 15 minutes after. Um, which uh, is going to allow us to hugely ramp up speed because that that has been the rate limiting step, certainly for us in practices. And I remember last time we, we talked about vaccination in the height of the, the first waves, you were running a mass vaccination programme through, was it Newbury Racecourse? Is that happening again or is it now just practices? No, obviously the race course wanted to get back to racing. Uh, and so we've been doing it out of practice sites um, mainly. And there's been limitations to that because of the way the NHS works with the, you having to have a designated site and really you could only vaccinate from that. And so it has been complicated. There's been a lot of bureaucratic shift and drift, if you like, if you want to use the um, viral metaphors in how we manage and and operate this COVID vaccination program. And what's interesting is that there's definitely been a shift and drift towards a much more flu model approach, which is much easier for local practices to, to deal with. And I think, um, you know, one of the advices I'd give, although this might be a little bit late for people, is that if you can book an appointment, book it, because you will not wait seven hours. You know, the, the booking system is very robust. It's only really the come down and take your chance that's gonna give you the big long waits. I think what would also be interesting is to see whether the, you know, the, the offer of 18 million vaccinations by the end of the year, does it turn out that that was a, 
completed vaccinations, booked vaccinations or invitations issued? And I think wait and see on this one. I, exactly. There's definitely been some tautology today for sure. Um, and so from your point of view, now that the 15 minute uh, waiting period is, is gone does it make it much more kind of a flu vaccine throughput yeah I mean, we we will be able to um have multiple vaccinators operating you you know perhaps on one minute per patient sort of timetable um whereas if we uh only had um 24 chairs that we could use in a sort of socially distanced way it would mean that actually we could only restrict ourselves to two vaccinators with two and a half minutes so it's definitely going to increase hugely what we can do well let's look forward to a catch-up in next month to see how it's how it's gone um okay for this issue of dtb we're going to talk about the editorial have a look at one of our dtb select articles and then um, discuss our main review so let's start with the editorial. And this is one that we wrote together uh, following the licensing of Molnupiravir uh, for COVID disease. So James, take us through the issues. Yeah, so this is this is a, a, an interesting story, probably a good news story. Molnupiravir, oral antiviral drug, which um, the MHRA were very pleased to announce on the 4th of November that they had licensed it. Um, and almost immediately, 11 o'clock the same day, um, the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care actually posted a video on social media extolling how this was going to be a major breakthrough, a game changer in the management and treatment of COVID-19. Um, and this was based just on really one study, the Move Out study, um, which was a study looking at offering patients within five days of becoming symptomatic with COVID um, this oral antiviral agent. And the study early figures seem to show that it reduced uh, admissions to hospital and deaths by 50%. Uh, so this was, you know, look, looks like a good drug. But as we say in our uh, editorial, the issues for us is um, actually there's an awful paucity of, of good evidence at the moment. And what headline figures suggest, and what, what headline figures always do is is pick up the uh, the relative risk reduction. So, um, when you looked at the numbers, the reduction in hospitalisation and death, and I think it was mostly hospitalisations, wasn't it? Was it was seven point three versus fourteen? That's right. It was a fifty. I think it was a fifty percent relative risk reduction. If you looked at the absolute risk reduction, it was about six point eight percent. So, if you looked at the preliminary study or the evidence from the preliminary evidence anyway, we're looking like um, an absolute risk reduction of 6.8%, which is the numbers needed to treat of 15. So if you manage to give the drug to 15 people who are symptomatic with at least one risk factor, which was aged over 60, diabetes, obesity, COPD, or active cancer, if you give them the drug within five days of them becoming symptomatic and having a positive PCR, you could reduce their risk of being hospitalised or dying by 50%. Numbers needed to treat 15. Sounds great. However... But, yes, and what is the but? <laughs> there's two buts, I think. First of all, you quite cleverly dug up the more that they've now produced data on the rest of the study. And oddly enough, the figures aren't quite so good. So the, the rest of the, the patients who had been um, in the study, that that data is now available and suddenly there's been a shift. So now we're talking about 6.8% of the 
uh, molnupiravir group being admitted or dying versus 9.7% in the placebo group. That's an absolute risk reduction of 2.9% or a number needed to treat of 35. So that's doubled, but even more, even a bigger but, was that as far as we can tell, this study excluded patients who'd had vaccinations. And to be so, fair, we should just say that it took a, quite a while to tease this or to find out this information, didn't it? That, that they were dealing with an unvaccinated population. Correct. And I was just thinking about this. So if you think back to the study, they're saying that the placebo group in this study, um, we're talking about 9%, one in 10 people who had been COVID, who had a, uh, a risk factor, were admitted to hospital. Now, there are 54,000 cases a day at the moment in the UK. So if we transferred that study figure that about 10% of people are admitted to hospital if they get COVID, then that 54,000 looks like it should be about 5,460 odd daily admissions. Now, actually, there's a fifth of those being admitted at the moment, about 1,000. Now, of course, not all those 54,000 cases per day are symptomatic or in the risk group. So, we, But it just makes me think, if you, know, if you compare data, it just makes me think that the vaccination body, it's going to be different in that population, I am sure. And so we have a study here that seems to show great results in patients who are not vaccinated. But I just wonder how good it will be in patients, particularly in this UK, where we have 85% of the population vaccinated. And I guess what we haven't seen yet is the delivery plan for how this will be rolled out in, in practice. It's, do you know, I think it's literally just come out in the last um, 24 hours. There are talks about a number of ways. So there's this panoramic trial that literally came out on the 8th of December. Um, you can go to panoramictrial.org and it's a trial that um, patients can actually, if they uh, fulfill the criteria, which is that they've had a positive PCR test and are within five days of having uh, the symptoms, they can actually self-recruit into that trial. So in fairness to the government, they are actually now recruiting for a study to look into whether this drug is going to be beneficial or not. Um, but this is a new drug. Um, there have been a couple of other um, studies it's been involved in. There was a move-in study which looked at its benefit on patients who were already admitted to hospital, which didn't show any benefit. So I think we just have to be aware, that, like all new drugs, there's a lot of question marks around this. Um, I think it's possibly right, as we say in our editorial, to move quickly in these situations. And it does offer something perhaps to the unvaccinated um, cohort of people. But there's a lot of question marks and there's going to be an awful lot of clever logistics to make this work, to get this drug to people within five days of them becoming positive um, is going to take some doing. And again, if we go back to the problem that, that, that raised this whole issue, which is there we were presented with some evidence via press release and uh, Twitter. But actually, if you still look for the data published in the UK, it's actually very hard, or I have yet to find much more substantiated data of what the trials actually said. I can find it from the US FDA. I can find their detailed yeah. analysis. But I checked just before we, we started recording today, 
and the MHRA website still says the public assessment report will be published shortly. So it's still not available. Um, yeah. And, and um, that's uh, of concern. I, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's, this is this is a study that hasn't even been peer reviewed yet. And, you know, let's be honest, the, um, you know, we know what happened last time they uh, some antiviral oral antivirals were produced to, to treat the flu. You know, the whole business behind behind those two uh, drugs, which really never really demonstrated the benefit that was meant to happen. So we'll watch this space. Um, it could be good news, but I think we should be cautious. And I think it would be very useful if anyone um, is considering this, you know, get into that panoramic trial uh, because I think it's really important that we get some proper evidence to support this drug if it's going to be rolled out in a big way. Okay, uh, that's, thank you very much. Uh, so let's um, let's turn to one of our select articles. Um, I know this is one that you've you've uh, commented on and, and got some opinions on. This this was one that looked at the study of prescribing in middle aged adults. Um, so talk us through it. Yeah, I mean, this was a, a this was a good study actually. I did it, I did get a little bit hot under the collar. It's um, all about potential inappropriate prescribing or PIP in middle aged adults, and it's a cross sectional cohort study um, based on forty one UK general practices in Lambeth. And what they did basically was they used the PROMPT criteria, which is prescribing in middle aged people's treatments. That's what PROMPT stands for. They looked at the prompt criteria to assess what percentage of, of uh, adults aged 45 to 64 over five years um, had inappropriate prescribing. And the prompt criteria, there are about, I think, 22 of them, and they cover everything from using benzodiazepines long term um, to prescribing uh, aspirin or nonsteroidals without using uh, a PPI. Um, using doses of aspirin above 150 for antiplatelet therapy and, you know, that sort of thing, using omeprazole in patients with um, taking clopidogrel. So actually 22 criteria and they just compared the prescribing in these big numbers, 46,000 patients, um, and just assessed how well basically we were doing against those criteria. And, and the assessment is, is purely on what was prescribed or did they look at outcomes? No, this is well. This is the bit that I got a bit twitched about. It it just looked at the prescribing, and what was interesting actually was that um, the overall number they said of these pips, these potentially inappropriate prescribing, was around twenty percent. It actually was twenty percent in two thousand fourteen, and it was eighteen percent in two thousand and nineteen. 20% always sort of captures me a little bit because, you know, I was always taught uh, and in fact, NICE have reaffirmed that any guideline will only capture about 80% of people. So you should expect at any one time about one in five of your patients not to fit guideline criteria. And here we have actually a study showing, well, lo and behold, 20% of these this population didn't fit guidelines criteria. So this could be a good thing because it might mean that we're doing some personalised prescribing. That was initially, anyway, my thoughts. Having said, having looked at the prompt data, yes, there's, there are one or two parts of it which I think are outdated. But actually, if you look at the prompt criteria, they're pretty robust, actually. And I think the overall study was robust. So I think the overall issue here is, yes, there is still some inappropriate prescribing going on in middle-aged people that we should be, you know, conscious of and working 
to try and re- reduce. And which were the ones that stood out for them as the, the kind of the most problematic? Yeah, well, this is the interesting thing. So 14 of the 22, very low prevalence, less than 0.5%. But the two most common examples were non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs being used for greater than three months. Now, I have an issue with that because with a reduction in opioids for long-term chronic pain, actually, I think we will see the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs being used for longer. So actually, I don't really believe that's a particularly good criteria for inappropriate prescribing. And the other one, which is more interesting, and I still can't get my head around this, is the concurrent use of two or more drugs from the same class, which includes treatment with two or more non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, opioids, or selective serotonin uptake inhibitors. And I was trying to rack my brain, because that was about 7%. And I, I can't think what that might be unless it's topical and oral anti-inflammatories in OA, perhaps, or is it um, opioids, perhaps someone's on cocodamol and tramadol, I suppose. But the two different SSRIs, I really struggled with that one to work out. And that's, the you know, that's, say, 7.6% of, of patients apparently are on more than two or more drugs of the same class. And I suppose there's a question, you know, could some of it be an artifact that, that I don't know how clean your repeat dispensing or repeat prescribing systems are, but if somebody happened to have two and they were only, so maybe they had two SSRIs because they'd been on one before, but they were never never actually requesting one, but they only requested, could that happen? Mm, I, th- you're absolutely right. It, it could be down to the software because it could be other things as well. It might be that, um, you know, you go to issue something and you might even issue it perhaps or not issue it and then perhaps cancel it and, and prescribe it. I don't know. But but looking looking at the study, the way it was um, structured, it did allow for that because it did actually say that the way we worked out whether there were two or more drugs of the same class is we looked over six months and you had to have had three prescriptions of at least three of each drug for them to decide that that was concurrent prescribing. So they'd looked really carefully at it. So it's one I'm gonna go away and sort of think about when I'm seeing patients and ask myself, you know, where is the one in 15, one in 16 patient here who's on to the same class and see if I can work out what it is. And, and the other, you know, the other ones were the old friends, you say the long-term use of NSAIDs, which which is difficult because it's, say, times are changing with with the use of, of analgesia and the other is the good old long-term use of z drugs and benzos that that seemed to be picked up as well it was but um but not not as common as uh those those two one but absolutely first generation i think there were first generation antihistamines used for longer than seven days z drugs and benzodiazepines for more than four weeks those were the sort of areas they were looking at but the prompt the prompt um criteria quite useful it's another thing though isn't it i suppose that we'll end up being tested on we already have um a lot of tests going on from our local prescribing teams and um various other sort of uh safety mechanisms pincer and things as well so there's a lot of lot going on and i think prescribing has become much much safer than it was certainly when i joined general practice 30 years ago but perhaps you know, despite all that, it, it's a good reminder that our focus has tended to be on older people and frail elderly and, and prescribing for those. But actually, there is another cohort who, if if we should be looking at, I, yes, I mean, let's be honest. Every single prescription we do, we should be looking at this carefully and just making sure that we are doing the least number of drugs and the most, as you say, the outcomes of the issue, outcomes, outcomes, outcomes. It's so important that we don't just end up 
having a perfectly prescribed set of drugs which aren't actually achieving anything. And of course, what we don't know, as we say, because there are no outcomes data, is were any of these potentially problematic prescriptions actually a problem? Did anyone come to any harm because of them? But you know, that's the next bit of work, I guess, to, to see whether whether they are uh, causing causing harms. But I think it was an interesting paper, and it certainly raises some 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 questions and and possible actions for us to consider. Yeah, the fact we've spoken, talked about it for a while is exactly that. It is definitely one of those papers that gets you thinking, and that's always a good thing. I think that was your hint to move on. Okay, let's <laughs> let's let's finish with our main article. Um, so this one is looking particularly at the challenges people face when trying to stop antidepressants. Um, so let's let's go through it. What what do the authors cover? Yeah, so this is a, this is a, one of those um, lovely big reviews looking at the whole canopy of of antidepressant prescribing and just just sort of throwing a light on some areas. And as you say, the main thrust of it really focuses on the new Royal College of Psychiatrists guidance on stopping antidepressants and the importance of understanding there may be a difference between uh, relapse of your depression or withdrawal effects. And I think a lot of prescribers now are getting used to this this concern. But the article is big. It looks at the fact that, you know, 7.8 million patients received at least one prescription for an antidepressant in 2019-2020 in England. So that's about one in six of all adults. So this is a drug we use a great deal of. And the authors talk a little bit about the efficacy, talk about the Hamilton depression rating scale and difference between a statistical significant reduction in um, depression on that scale versus a clinically important reduction and the fact that actually the studies don't show much in the way of a clinical, clinically important reduction. And the, there's discussion about that in the paper about whether, you know, is there a subset of people who do well on them compared to others? We talk about the harms um, and in particular this withdrawal effects, which actually I've, I'd forgotten the CSM had uh, flagged this up over 16 years ago, 2004, saying that actually, you know, perhaps as many as 50% of people will have a withdrawal effect in coming off their antidepressants. And it's really important that we manage that well. Um, and that's say, that's the thrust of the article, a whole section on how do we stop these antidepressants looking at the RC psych guidance, looking at the concept of test reduction, which I think is a new concept for me, where you actually decide if you want to stop someone's antidepressants, are they a high risk of having relapse or um, uh, rebound effect and managing the reduction, perhaps with a test reduction initially to see how it goes. So some really good stuff. And I think, um, you know, it's important that we recognize that these are drugs that have been used uh, widely and there are definitely patients who uh, do well on them but it's about really making sure that we recognize that they're not without their harms and I think you know going back to the to the start of the article where they talk about evidence of efficacy part of the problem is that a lot of the trials are done to meet a regulatory assessment criteria um, as you say based on on rating scales and perhaps less good evidence around what it actually means to a patient. And, and it, outcomes, uh, precisely that. Yeah, that and I think this is this is what makes it so difficult because um, once you start sort of having to 
demonstrate uh, an improvement and what does that improvement mean you then start um, dichotomizing data and it all gets um, it gets very murky I think as you say you um, so it's a it's a difficult area this I think I think antidepressants at the moment are going through that pendulum swing where we need to be reminded that actually the evidence for them, I mean, for example, evidence in children, absolutely non-existent really, and yet we are seeing an increased use of antidepressants in people under 18, which we've really got to challenge and ask ourselves, where's the evidence for it? So I think this is a this is a class of drugs that are perhaps swinging, the pendulum is swinging back, and as prescribers, patients are going to want to start coming off these perhaps in the you know and it's about us doing that in the in the best most effective way and there'll still be some patients who um, it'll not be possible for them to stop their antidepressants and it's important that we recognize that and don't end up sort of um, pushing people where actually they can't go and and just from an observational point of view when you've got people who are thinking about stopping what are the steps that they actually go through and, and, and how easy is it to support them? It's an interesting one. Um, for the majority of patients, actually, um, it really doesn't seem to be an issue. Um, and I, we actually had some discussion with the authors about this um, when we were doing uh, writing the, the, the articles being written, because I think for most of um patients it really is not an issue they are very quickly able to come off them just by reducing the dose over a period of, of a few weeks um, but they're also definitely a group of patients who find and often the way they find out is that they'll come and tell you that they felt really bad um, and they, they felt they had a real dip and then when you ask them carefully you discover actually they had stopped taking their antidepressant perhaps a week before two weeks before and you've recognize oh is that a relapse or was that actually withdrawal effects and actually they're the ones then that you need to look at really deciding how how slowly you reduce it and the rc psych talk about the concept of using liquid so that you can really use very small reductions in dose over a long period to get down to coming off the drug completely and, and they did see you know, the authors picked out that in in you know, some some uh experiences of people almost filing their tablets down to, to get smaller and smaller doses. Now, as you say, the liquid formulations help you know, help deal with some of these issues, but clearly some people have very di real difficulties in, in even stopping by small amounts. Exactly, exactly. And, that, and that's the issue because for them, it, it is a major issue and, and, and it's really important that they get good support from their prescriber um, and, you know, that that's really important that the prescriber themselves has a clear understanding of what's necessary, what needs doing, and, and I think that's where this this article adds a real strength to to anyone who needs to do that. So a big thank you to Mark and Michael for for writing that for us, um, and be interested if anyone's got got any any comments on that. Um, you can find these and all our articles on our website at dtb.bmj.com. Uh, once again, thank you to anyone who's left comments on our podcast. We do enjoy receiving your feedback and suggestions. If you want to let us know what you think about our podcasts, either positive or negative, or even suggest something for us to cover in the future, uh, you can do this on the iTunes site. And there is a link to the DTB iTunes podcast page on the notes that accompany this podcast. Or you can email us directly at dtb at bmj.com. Uh, it would be great to hear from you. 
So thank you for listening to us. Uh, we hope you enjoy the Christmas and New Year festivities. And please join us in a month's time for February's podcast. 